Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Thursday, October the 6th, 2022, so I'm told, at least. Um, we've done a number of shows recently on QAnon. Um, mostly by authors who don't really approve of them. Um, Mike Rothschild has a new book out on QAnon, uh, Mia Bloom and Sophia uh, Moskalenko as well. And they both seem to suggest that um, organizations or networks like QAnon take over our minds, um, resulting in conspiracy theories. We even had another author, William Bernstein, on the show um, last year, imagining that these conspiracy theories of networks like QAnon are more dangerous than actual epidemics like COVID. It's all bound up, I think, in the idea of networks like QAnon on the right, and of course, there are equivalents, I guess, on the left, that are in the business of brainwashing, of taking over our minds, of not allowing us to think in a reasonable or rational sense. So it's appropriate today that we are indeed going to talk about brainwashing with my guest, um, the author of a new book called Brainwashed, A New History of Thought Control uh, by Daniel Pick. He's a very distinguished uh, British historian and psychoanalysis. Uh, and he's joining us from North London. Um, Daniel, um, why are we so uneasy about the idea of brainwashing? No one ever says, oh, I'm, I'm proud of being brainwashed. Why is it always a, a, a form of insult, of derision, of, 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 of questioning whether someone's actually lost their mind? Well, I mean, I think the possession we have of our own rational faculties, our powers of reason are always precarious, you know, um, and we, we are fascinated, but maybe also appalled by stories or you know news about the total takeover of the mind. Um, so I think it's it's something about you know it raises the question of what is it to think for ourselves, and it's like a an extreme version of the loss of a loss of free will, that loss of capacity to think um, and to be ourselves. So you know it's it's got a long I guess the idea of possession of the mind is much older, but brainwashing is a kind of post-war story where the new term emerges. And as you say, it's become a term that's used all the time. Uh, nobody says it proudly about themselves or others. So it, it is pejorative. And it can, of course, mean many different things. Daniel, how much is this bound up, this idea of brainwashing, on the assumption that we all have, quote-unquote, brains which take on information um, and are designed, perhaps by God, perhaps not, to think for ourselves. How much is this rooted in perhaps a, an enlightenment idea of, of the mind, of, of, of Locke, and perhaps per, even more importantly, Hume, the idea that, we, that our minds begin as empty baggage and we take on information and they're designed to think for themselves? Yes, I mean, it's as you say, you can go back to the enlightenment and the question of what is it to, to have a mind and how does it form and to, to what extent do we depend on experience you know the blank sheet uh idea of Locke um 
And, and then, you know, even granted that, there's a question then of good and bad influences or good and bad experiences of what is it that then constitutes us. So I think that, you know, you can certainly think about it in those terms. I mean, brainwashing might more, if one's thinking about the, the Enlightenment and the late, later Enlightenment, think more about sort of ideas like animal magnetism, you know, or what came to be known as mesmerism, but the idea of something quite other than, than reason. Um, so, um, but the fear, I think, of losing our minds, you know, you can run it back to different periods. You su you've suggested the Enlightenment, but we could go back to the ancient world. I mean, you know, that's always a question, isn't it? What is it to reason? And how far also can groups of people or crowds take over the mind of individuals? That's, again, a kind of long-standing preoccupation in philosophy and literature. Your book focuses on the modern period, uh, the modern period, perhaps most particularly of, of the Cold War, of this uh, conflict between market-based societies and centralized communist states. Um, what is it about modernity of the 20th century in particular uh, that lends itself to a history of, of brainwashing? What attracted you to this project? Well, I, I got interested in it via a previous project where I was looking at the interwar period, the 20s and the 30s and the Second World War, where I was looking at um, the role that the psychological professions played in understanding fascism and Nazism, as well as communism. Um, and I wrote a book called The Pursuit of the Nazi Mind that was really an exploration of what role these psi professions, to sort of use the shorthand of just PSY for all of them, but what role those professions played in, in the understanding of fascism and also in the allied effort to defeat the Third Reich. So that was an earlier project. And then through that, I realized there was this Cold War debate about the mind that kind of really crystallized around this new word that was coined in 1950, brainwashing. And it was by the original you know, writers, particularly Edward Hunter, who was, was often attributed as the first person to write on this, um, was thinking about Maoism. He was thinking about what was happening in the People's Republic of China, which was just formed. And he thought he was translating a Chinese term for this, this kind of not so much cleansing the mind in the sense of washing, but sort of evacuating mind and filling it up then with, with a sort of set of, um, of beliefs that were imposed from outside. How much of your history of brainwashing is bound up in technology? Presumably, you had uh, the equivalents in the 19th or 18th century of Goebbels um, or the, the masters of propaganda within the CIA or the KGB, but they never had the technology. What changed in the 20th century to make brainwashing so ubiquitous and and central, perhaps, to the way we've lived our lives. I mean, just before I answer that, I'll just say what, just one other thought about what interested me in this is partly the history of how this emerged, and partly it is the psychology of it and our fear about influence, our anxieties about where does influence become covert persuasion and then brainwashing the spectrum of states. But I think in the, what's different in the 20th, I mean, there are many things that differentiate 20th century debates about mind control from earlier fears of possession of the mind. I mean, if one thinks of, in a way, the age of total war, the First and the Second World Wars, uh, and the, the role really of, of mass, you know, of, of mass mobilizations, uh, the question in a way of morale, of public opinion, 
um, and of the uses then of propaganda to sway masses of people. I mean, that's true in peacetime and in wartime, that of course the move towards mass democracy also leads to new debates about the technologies that then emerge to persuade, whether it's newspapers, whether it's um, film, whether it's radio, uh, you know, the, um, these, these become in a way the kind of uh, center of a debate about technology. Later, of course, computers, social media, and so on. But I mean, the idea of people becoming robotic under the influence of technology is, you know, almost as old as the 20th century, even the invention of the term robots in the First World War in a story, Rossum's Universal Robots. But the idea of a kind of army of uh, almost sort of machine-like creatures um, that take over the world, you know, again, you can run it back to earlier fears about technology in the 19th century um, and what it is to be human. But something I think shifts both in, in the technology, in the conditions of mass warfare, the role of propaganda, the role of the state in all of that, and the rise of you know, new forms of understanding the mind through the human sciences, and then the attempt to sort of draw on those sciences in, in warfare, so to use psychology uh, and psychiatry and so on in crafting messages and in trying to sort of understand the enemy power, but also to craft messages, uh, propaganda messages, and also to shore up morale on the home front. So I think all of that is already around from the First World War onwards, really. And then, of course, the rise in the 1920s of fascist movements, first in Italy and you know, immediately after in Germany, um, but you know, leads then to liberal commentators in, in the West you know, to look aghast at what's happening and to try to use these um, psychological professions to try to understand these phenomena. Um, you're not the first, Daniel, or the last to, to make these points. Um, your book, Brainwashed, A New History of Thought Control, covers a lot of very familiar terrain from Huxley and Orwell through to CIA obsession with manipulating public opinion. What do you think is original about the book? What have you said in Brainwashed, A New History of Thought Control that hasn't been said before? And is there a, is there a polemic at the heart of it? Are you arguing for a particular interpretation of, 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 of why the 20th century was the age of brainwashing? Partly that, partly it's, you know, it presents new research. So I did a lot of archival research in various, you know, archives in the, in the US and in the UK. Partly it is an argument about our, our fascination with the theme of brainwashing. So partly it's telling the story. And as you say, there are other you know, uh, notable books on this. I'm, I'm far from and films. I mean, yeah, uh, and films, and films, yeah. and actually, I helped you know to facilitate making a few more documentaries for our collaborative team project at Birkbeck. That kind of, in a way, was the context for my own book. Mm. This is the Hidden Persuaders, persuaders the, the, yeah, the project. Yeah, which that's... people, you know, your um, listeners might be interested just to. It's a free uh, access public resource. Hidden Persuaders at Birkbeck has films and school kids videos and blogs and so on. But I think it's, um, it is making an argument about the nature of our cultural fascination with it, partly with the sort of, with the fascination with the more extreme and melodramatic versions, whether it's in Hollywood or new, news stories, and partly suggesting that brainwashing became a kind of foil for thinking about thinking itself, that to mm. sort of explore these, um, the terrors of brainwashing was also to ask yourself, even if you weren't a prisoner in chains being subjected to some hideous 
regime of thought control, but how free am I to think for myself? So I think it became a way in the post-war period and since to sort of pose that question, both about totalitarianism, what happened to people under conditions that became to be known as totalitarianism after the war, but also what is it to think for yourself in the so-called free world that stood in such contrast to the so-called totalitarian world? There are, of course, all sorts of classic works and critiques of both communism and capitalism. The, uh, the I don't know what you would call him, Edward Bernays, uh, American theorist, noted that the way in which advertising has become the, the new way of brainwashing. This is a very influential theory. Frankfurt School saw capitalism as um, a more sophisticated, I guess, form of brainwashing than communism. And then, of course, there are the classic books like Darkness at Noon, which underline the effectiveness or the nature of communist brainwashing. Do you think that the brainwashing on the left is more effective than on the right? It seems to me as if um, the communists did a, a less effective job than the capitalists. So maybe capitalist brainwashing is more sophisticated and, and, and less organized. How, how would you compare the, uh, the success of capitalist versus communist brainwashing? Well, Andrew, there are so many interesting things sort of packed into what you just said. I mean, one is just that you've noted, which is important as a context, is, is the sort of dystopian fiction and also the, the kinds of testimonies and exposés of Stalinism, as well as fascism uh, in, in the 40s and the 50s. You mentioned Kerstler's Darkness at Noon, which is in, in the early 40s, and Orwell, um, you know, post-war, just after the war, 1949, writing 1984. And then there's also pre, you know, pre-war in the 30s, there's, there's Brave New World, Aldous Huxley. So there is a kind of literature, and those are just amongst the most famous books about, about this whole subject. So you kind of were, were raising that. I mean, I, I would want to say about what, when you were asking the question, what's different about my book, I suppose it's also to look at not just brainwashing, but the cluster of other ideas in the 1950s that emerged alongside brainwashing, like menticide was one, the idea of a kind of systematic destruction of mind. Um, that was in a book called The Rape of the Mind, written by a Dutch psych psychiatrist who was based in New York. That's strong that, language, that, Daniel, isn't it? <laughs> well, there were terms also like groupthink. There were terms like thought control, uh, the captive mind, and so on. So, so, I mean, all of that is, is the context, but there were also personal stories of people who were held prisoner in the Korean War that I'm, I'm very interested in in the book. Um, and then, you know, there's, as you say, there are also, there's Edward Bernays. Now, he was the nephew of Freud, Sigmund Freud, and he was an emigre from Europe to, to the US. And he was an important, he became a, an important figure in sort of the creation of the American public relations industry and was a kind of forerunner of another emigre who was important after the war, um, Dichter, who set up a sort of school or an institute of what he called motivational research to understand people's desires and appetites and to use those on behalf of Madison Avenue. So from Bernays to Dichter, there's this tradition of sort of using the insights of psychology and psychoanalysis to try to sort of help business and capitalism and advertising. And and then there were critiques of that in the 50s. So I was also interested in that, how Vance Packard 
uh, was the most famous, wrote a book called, called The Hidden Persuaders. You've mentioned it because we borrowed that title for our website, but, but his 1957 classic kind of popular book about the, um, what, what Madison Avenue can do to you. And, and one of his kind of, um, you know, bet noir for his story is Dichter, who he thinks is a very dangerous figure and that what people need to understand is when they're consuming and voting, they're not simply thinking and deciding for themselves. They're subjected to a whole kind of battery of, of influences. Now, in a way, that may just be something we now take for granted, that we assume, of course, there are these influences. But he writes this book to try to sort of, in a way, analyze the kinds of techniques that were, that were involved. Um, so I do think there's something very significant about that post-war exploration of the mind. Um, and I think, you know, there are different ways one could write the history of brainwashing. One is as a story about the Cold War and the, the kind of use of, um, you know, in a way, psychological warfare and, and to treat it as that kind of story. But it is also a story about the critique of, of capitalism, as well as the critique of Stalinism, Maoism, fascism, Nazism, the, these sort of isms of that period. And I think what's interesting is is how it goes from primarily being a debate about what's happening in communist China and in, in, in the Soviet Union to being an exploration of the, the, the kind of more insidious ways in, in a Western liberal democratic society. People's minds and identities and behavior are, are fashioned in ways they don't necessarily fully understand. Yeah, when I was reading the book, thinking about what you said, it occurred to me that a lot of the language hasn't changed. We've done a number of shows on contemporary China, Xi's China. We did one recently, actually two shows with two Wall Street Journal writers, Josh Chin and Lisa Lin, who have a new book out, Surveillance State Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control, a classic narrative about brainwashing. Um, how much, Daniel, can we trust ourselves. I mean, presumably there are propaganda states like China, but given your history of brainwashing, to what extent should we be suspicious of all these theories of brainwashing going on in countries that we don't really think very highly of? Suspicious of the theories. I mean, that's an interesting thing. That well, one suspicious should... of the fact that you know that the brainwashing began as this critique of communist China, and it's reappeared now in lots yeah, so of books now about brainwashing in in, in a kind of digital narrative, a new digital network China where there are cameras everywhere and everyone's being watched. I mean, interestingly, Vance Packard, who I just mentioned in the early 1960s, wrote a book about surveillance in America and his files. I went to his archive um, at Penn State and they're sort of bulging with exploration of camp, you know, secret cameras and, um, you know, all, all the kind of forms of surveillance that are emerging um, as a, a form, you know, forms of technology and gadgetry in, in America and his fear that, that people are ending up being surveyed in ways they don't know. So there's, again, a long history of the anxiety about surveillance, both, of the, you know, obviously re regarding, uh, you know, in communist societies, but also in the West. And I think what I'm wanting to do is to say, yeah, we need to be careful about the language and not just to assume the terms, but to historicize them, to understand how the, the language emerged and for what purposes. But I don't just want to sort of chuck out the language and sort of just say, oh, well, you know, we can do without it. I think the terms need to be treated skeptically, but also treated seriously, that there are ways in which 
you know, whether we call it brainwashing or mind manipulation, what, so there are techniques. I mean, you know, both in, in the crudest sense, if you have prisoners and people who are captive. Um, and in a way, the heroes of my story, story are the writers in the post-war period who did, you know, really try to explore this. And I think I'm suggesting that... Like Milos, kind of uh, the author of The Captive Yeah, like Milos in his great book, The Captive Mind, like Hannah Arendt in her studies um, of, of origins of totalitarianism and later lying, essays like lying in politics. And, you know, the need to be vigilant, even in, in liberal democracies, about the erosion of the kinds of um, institutions and processes and traditions that protect us from, you know, uh, you know, paranoia, from um, irrational fears. You know, there's a great essay in the early 60s that you may also perhaps know, the paranoid style in American politics. Yeah, we've done, a number of, um, you know, we've done a number of shows on that. And it's interesting. Um, it's interesting, Daniel, that the final chapter of your book is called The Paranoid Style. Is that a, a consequence or a reaction to brainwashed? Is, is, should we be? I mean, when you read what, what you write, in some ways, it's, it might suggest to people that they should be paranoid. But of course, the paranoid style that um, Hofstadter writes about seeds networks like QAnon too. What are the cause yes, and I mean, effect? Paranoid and his essay style. was written, you know, it was actually given as a lecture that the day before JFK was assassinated, and he then writes it. Up. Maybe he course, assassinated him. Daniel. Well, Could I mean, when you, look, a, when you look online... Conspiracy at, theory? Well, I mean, conspiracy theory knows no bounds. And of course... Maybe he was at Oxford it, when he made the, uh, when he made yeah. the uh, speech, so it would have been yeah, hard so he to couldn't be in Dallas, yeah. Dallas. I think we can rule him out. But, but it gave it a new lease of life, you know, that that became obviously a source of an enormous range of, of fears about the, the deep, what later comes to be called the deep state, but of, of foreign powers, of forces within. Um, and, you know, of course, as you're saying, um, one can be appropriately vigilant. I mean, plots and conspiracies can exist in any group, in any society, but conspiracy theory, as that term's come to be understood, is, is not about a balanced view that allows all possibilities. It's about a kind of theory that that, is, that sort of presupposes, as it were, a kind of dark network and a hidden plot, often then, you know, um, leading us away, distracting us from other, you know, more obvious or other, you know, other forms of explanation. So I think once upon a time, conspiracy theory just, you know, theorist just meant someone who had a theory about a conspiracy. And that concept then came to be psychologized. So it sort of starts to describe a particular type of personality who is more kind of inclined to take this darker or more sort of persecutory view of, of the world. So um, that kind of emerges later on. But I think that Hofstadter, again, is trying to understand the power of uh, media, the power of storytelling and of fermenting anxiety um, in order to explain in, in, in simplified ways a complex reality. So so there's a kind of idea in conspiracy theory that it's, a, as it were, it claims to be a, mo a more sophisticated view than the more ordinary everyday explanation and sort of as though saying, look deeper, um, but, but often to sort of, as it were, leads uh, to, to, to sometimes to the most bizarre theories. So I think it's... Um, Are there any more bizarre, Daniel, though, um, these theories than organized religion? Uh, Which in some ways a lot of people might suggest 
QAnon and, and other networks are replacing? I mean, is there any well, more I, I, no, I, than I, the I idea would, of I would want, God well, I having that, a child? No, I think that conflates too many things. I mean, the risk of this discussion is we start conflating religion or uh, politics, you know, or all forms of communism or all forms of, so that it becomes sort of too much, too homogenized. And yeah, I would want to differentiate. I, one, of, one of the other sort of uh, key figures in my story is Robert J. Lifton, who was um, an Air Force psychiatrist actually at the end of the Korean War. And I tried to tell the story of some of the POWs that he uh, also, you know, interviewed and, and thinks about and tell other stories about brainwashing. But he goes on to write, I think, very convincingly about this subject, as well as cults and, um, you know, all kinds of uh, terrible forms of, of thought reform. Um, and I think we do need to differentiate that. I mean, it depends what, it depends what kind of organized religion you, meet, you mean. And I think one is, he also needs to be a bit wary about assuming everybody who follows, you know, whether it's a religion, even QAnon, is all in the same place. I think one has to ask questions. You know, one, one doesn't know about the mindset of everybody who pays some credence to that or who claims to be interested in it. One would need to, again, drill down into the many different reasons why people are interested or become adherents, whether it's to religions or to cults or to mass movements on social media, whilst also being, I think, appropriately worried about the way in which our minds can be hijacked. What about the the gendered aspect here? You're um, you've obviously very influenced by Freud, who uh, is an incredibly controversial thinker now, particularly I think from from the point of view of of of, of women. Um, your book focuses on everything from The Simpsons to QAnon and the Stepford Wives. I, I just saw a movie. I don't know if you've seen it. Don't worry, darling. It's kind of controversial, but it's. Um, it's uh, a remix of the Stepford Wives imagining um, the way in which men and women, but particularly men, have been brainwashed by stereotypical gendered roles. In your analysis, are, are men more prone to this? It seems as if more men are sympathetic to QAnon than uh, women, but of course that's a politically correct idea these days. Can one distinguish between male and female brainwashing? I mean, I think, again, to historicize it, after the war, as you start to get the emergence of um, feminist uh, explorations of people's gendered roles, Simone de Beauvoir, or later in America, Betty Friedan and her book, The Feminine Mystique, by, by the time that she's writing that in the early 60s, brainwashing is kind of all the rage as a term and as a concept. And she actually uses it. She compares the fate of women in America with that of brainwashed soldiers in the Korean War and is exploring the kinds of social conditioning, to use another term, that sort of fashions identities and gendered roles in society. So, um, you know, I think she would, in, in that book, she's wanting to look at the particular pressures and influences, um, you know, on women in that period. Any truth? But it's, it's also true, Andrew, just, just to add one Sorry? Is there any truth to that? Do you think that Friedan was right to suggest that our culture was as guilty of brainwashing men and women about gendered roles as... Well, I think she was right to, to be inviting people to think critically about from cradle to grave the ways in which we are subjected to all, you know, from family to school to university to the workplace, that we are fashioned by a society, a culture, 
a politics. So, you know, that, that may now seem, again, a, a relatively obvious point, but she makes it with great force and influence in that book. But I think we'll just go back to your gendered point. The original story, when it sort of emerges and erupts in the early 50s around the Korean War, is primarily a story about men and, and the minds of men under pressure and what happens. And it was really part of, there was an anxiety that was in the West, but very notable in the US about that post-war generation and about men who couldn't cope. And there was a kind of development of a theory that, that this generation, post-war generation was somehow weaker than the previous generation and, and more subjected to, or more vulnerable to so-called brainwashing. So it becomes a gender debate from the beginning, including, which I describe in the book, um, there's a kind of 1950s version of this in which young men are seen to be weakened by their domineering mothers. There's a kind of theme about, comes to be known as momism in, in that period, but that somehow absent fathers or um, uh, dead fathers from the war or useless fathers leaves women in this sort of dominating position. And you get in, in many of the stories of that period and movies, a kind of, um, you know, uh, iconic kind of figure of the terrifying maternal uh, brainwashing figure and it's you know the most famous um, example or notorious example depending how you, how you look at it is in the Manchurian candidate which is the best brainwashing film of all isn't it Daniel yeah because it's in a way you could take it also as a satire about brainwashing fears as well as being an exercise in brain you know in exploring a sort of melodrama of brainwashing but it's also in a way I think tongue-in-cheek and very ambiguous because it partly is about what's happening in Korea and it's about you know soldiers being hypnotized and drugged and manipulated by their communist um, uh, jailers and sent you know one of them sent back to the US as a sort of automaton assassin under influence played by Lawrence Harvey in, in the movie um, but it's also then an exploration of McCarthyism in the US and the sort of hyster hysterical nature of media discussion and television so it's, a, it's actually a kind of really interesting and I think complicated movie, but it fe features this amazing performance by Angela Lansbury playing the, the mother, uh, the mother from hell. And that's a kind of, you know, leitmotif of many movies of that period, the sort of terrifying maternal figure. Yeah, and uh, Hitchcock, of course, deals with that very well in Psycho, you just murder your mother. That's the best Well, that's almost this. like the psychotic version of the fear you get, you get in Psycho. And then you get the neurotic version in North by Northwest, where... Poor Cary Grant is kind of, you know, uh, at the mercy of this nagging mother. But I think there are many movies that are about young men and their mothers. Um, and that that becomes and many one of the themes on brainwashing. Sorry. Yeah, well, I don't know what Freud would have made of that. You, you begin the book, you, you have a note to the reader, which I think was written after the book was finished. You write, this book was written in another epoch before Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, and you use the, um, the example of the heroic journalist um, Marina, and I'm going to mispronounce her name, Ozvayenikova. This was the remarkably brave journalist who appeared on a Russian news show with a note saying that everything they was, Putin was saying was lies. She's obviously a heroic figure, but you write this book was written in another epoch. I mean, th that story could have come straight out of Orwell, couldn't it? That, that story could, but I, I, I think that, you know, something, you know, dramatic and 
epoch or maybe arguably has happened, you know, which is the collapse of a previous model. I mean, we're seeing the consequences being played out with un unknown effect, the return of the nuclear dread. I mean, you can say this is a return of, you know, Cold War, like 19, early 1960s, um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. But and, and these are not new as such. But I think that something, you know, very uh, cr historically crucial is happening. We don't know the end point of it. But I think, you know, we're having to sort of adjust to that and to think afresh about international relations and politics and what's happening both in the West and the East. I mean, both with Russia and Ukraine and what's happening with China and the US and Taiwan. And I think, you know, these these are the salient, salient issues now. Um, and had I written the book, you know, had I started writing the book now, I'm sure one would be, that would be kind of like something to, to address if one's writing trying to write it as a history of the present. Let's end on a more positive note. How do we get out of being brainwashed? You, you talk a lot in the book about Arendt, who's probably now the most influential 20th century political theorist. What does Arendt say? What's her theory about confronting brainwashing, both from the left and the right? I mean, you know, she, said, she says many things and she, she writes many things. I mean, The Origins of Totalitarianism is a really complicated book but it also you know integrates into the story she's telling the history of western imperialism and what it would mean to sort of really fully reckon with empire and slavery and a kind of world politics that emerges with imperialism in the 19th century and, and she's also in a way you know trying to i mean it's a controversial bit because she does in a way want to put fascism and Stalinism alongside or to sort of, you know, think about these extremes as in a way, you know, having so many features in common rather than to look at the difference between, you know, these different forms of politics. So it was controversial, but I think a, a very important book. And it's partly about the conditions of the state and it's partly about conditions of the mind and what it is in a, to live in a society, where, not where everyone becomes brainwashed and convinced, but where you lose all capacity, she says, to differentiate truth from falsehood, that there's a kind of politics that creates massive confusion and a blurring of the line so that people can no longer think coherently. So it's about the destruction of a kind of way of knowing in any intelligible way what's happening and going on. And the kinds of apathy, loneliness, you know, anime uh, that, that both cause and uh, are causes of and consequences of totalitarianism. And she's also thinking about the West, uh, and she's so turning, I think, as with Miyoshi in his book, The Captive Mind, which I also write about and was so impressed by, of then thinking about, you know, Western societies and, and the need for a kind of vigilance about the more subtle ways in which the, 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 the institutions, as I was saying earlier, can get eroded or destroyed. And it seems to me in that sense, it's very timely and contemporary for the age of uh, authoritarian populism now, both in the US and in in Europe um, to think about this. And, but also I think not to be complacent about liberalism as though that sort of somehow is immune from scrutiny that one needs to really think hard about what are the conditions, the social and the psychic and the cultural and the economic conditions that enable people to thrive and to flourish or that, that damage that. And, you know, and the sort of interaction of the social and the economic and the psychological in different periods. So I think there are a number of, I, I just in a way wanted to put back on, you know, into discussion, some of these great writers, uh, you know, storytellers 
of that period, as well as some of the actual first-hand accounts, including by soldiers. I mean, both there are men. Uh, you were saying about the gendered thing. There are men and women who want to tell the, the story in in different ways, sort of survivors of different kinds of atrocious regime. And to just sort of think about that language and its relevance now. We have new terms now, of course, like radicalization and de-radicalization that are in some ways the heirs to this language of brainwashing or deprogramming. So it's just in a way to try to say, let's, let's um, take it seriously, but also think about what the resources are from that past that help us to think about this kind of very troubling topic. Whilst also, you know, we're saying on a, on a lighter note that it also becomes such a theme of popular culture. We've talked about the Manchurian candidate, but there are also great cartoons and, you know, pulp fictions, you know, uh, melodramas. So it, it's it kind of, you know, it's also part of the story of pop, of pop culture in the 60s and the 70s. I sort of lightly touch on the Beatles and Elvis Presley, who presented himself to Nixon as a potential agent to stop the brainwashing of American youth. So that's, you know, it comes up everywhere. And of course, we need to, you know, think about um, the, the uses and misuses of the term, but just to sort of notice how it's become part of the culture we live in. Yes, it's a big issue and it's dealt with in this major new book by uh, my guest today, Daniel Pick, the author of Brainwash, The New History of Thought Control. It's a wonderful book. It's so erudite and eclectic and covers so much ground, so many uh, writers, so many ideas. Congratulations, Daniel. It took you a long time. It's a major new work. What else are you reading these days in addition to uh, continuing to think about brainwashing, Daniel? I mean, I've read a number of books recently that are in a way not unrelated, like Anne Applebaum's book, The Twilight of Democracy. Yeah, Anne has been on the show several yeah, times. I yeah, like that David, book. David Runciman's How Democracy. Yeah, and, David's been on the show. Yeah, you know, Sarah Churchwell writing about America first. No, I haven't had her. Yeah, the American Dream, you know, is really, really good. Jill Lepore, American historian, writing about the, which I also just touch on, but, you know, in a way drawing on her, Simulmatics, an early uh, IT company in Madison Avenue that offers its help to the Kennedy campaign in 1960. And is the sort of beginning of that, you know, the kind of um, IT revolution in politics that, we see with all sorts of disturbing effects later. So those are all really good books. There are, there are many you know, uh, other books about um, brainwashing that are well worth people reading, like you know, older books, Dominic Stretfield, who wrote a book uh, some years ago that's very good, also on what the British did in Northern Ireland in the Troubles, um, and looking at the, the French, looking at the Americans. You know, th there are many books, I think, that that if people want to delve into this, they can do, aside from mine, um, you know. Um, well, thank you so yeah. much.